let me first of all uh, say thank you for being here tonight, and what a wonderful uh, word uh, that J.D. brought. In fact, I want to change just a little bit what I'm going to say and then get into what I have prepared and planned for, uh, but I think it'll tie his uh, message and mine together. I could very much identify personally uh, with what he shared, not because of my life, uh, but because of the person that I am closest to in all the world and one of my heroes uh, and one of the godliest persons I've ever known, and that is my wife. You see, my wife Charlotte was born into the home of alcoholic parents. And when she was about seven years of age, her parents divorced. And then she and her sister and her brother bounced around from one home to another to another. And at the age of 10, she was placed in a children's home and in essence became an orphan. And um, we'd been married for 25 years before she ever told me this. We were driving one day and I asked her, I said, well, when you were in the children's home, did, uh, did your daddy ever come to see you? And she got teary-eyed and she said, well, yeah, he came the first couple of months I was there but then he never came again, ever. And I remember asking her, well, did you ever ask your daddy to come and see you? And she said, well, yeah. Uh, we'd have parents weekend, and I would call my daddy on a Thursday or Friday, and I would say, Daddy, we're having parents weekend, and a lot of the kids' parents are coming. Would you come and see me? And she said her daddy always said the same thing every time. Yeah, babe, I'll come and see you. So on Saturday morning, my wife would get up, put on her nicest dress, and go out and sit on the front porch of her cottage, and she would wait two, three, four hours sometimes for a daddy who never came, who never showed up. When we got married, I was standing right beside her in my mom and dad's home in Atlanta, Georgia, and she calls her dad, and she says, Daddy, I'm getting married, and I want you to give me away. And it gets real quiet on her end, and tears start running down her face. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. She said, well, I know you're shy, so if you don't want to give me away, that's okay. I just want you to come to my wedding. And even though he only lived about 10 miles away, he didn't come. And I remember the first time I met her father. We had been married for several years and went to see her mother, and her father came over. It was during Christmas time, and I have to be honest, I didn't act very nicely toward him. I was angry with him before, because of the way he treated my wife and his daughter. And uh, afterwards, we uh, took him back to the Veterans Hospital in Atlanta because he was going through a treatment again for his alcoholism and when he got out of our van and was walking back into the hospital very insensitive uh, in a very insensitive way I, I looked at my wife and I said you know your dad's just pretty sorry he's not worth much and she looked at me and she didn't get angry though she, she probably should have been mad at me but she just looked at me and she said well I guess he is but he's still my daddy and I will always love him. 
Uh, her daddy died prematurely because of alcohol. Her daddy died never telling his daughter that he loved her. We don't know if he's in heaven or not. It, 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 it would have had to have been at the end of his life, and, and we don't know. We don't know. We hope. We don't know. But I wish you could meet my wife because, first of all, she's been my wife for 40 years. 40 years. It's pretty, pretty neat this day and age. She raised four godly sons, and everybody that's here at Southeastern that knows her, loves her dearly. She's just a very sweet, kind, loving lady. And so there has to be a question that, you know, you would want to raise. How did that happen? I mean, she is the perfect formula to be one of those statistics that J.D. read about a moment ago. So what happened? And I'll tell you exactly what happened. And I'm so glad he ended the way he, uh, when he spoke the way he did. When she was 10 years old, on a Sunday morning at a Baptist church in Fairburn, Georgia, and she says it this way when she shares her testimony, the pastor presented the gospel, and my wife came forward at the time of the invitation, and she gave her heart to Jesus, and Jesus, as she loves to say, gave his heart to her, and on that day, God became her perfect heavenly father. And if you met Charlotte and you were to ask her, well, Miss Aiken, Charlotte, what was the most wonderful part about getting saved when you were a little girl? Was it knowing that all of your sins are forgiven? And she would say, that is wonderful, but it wasn't the most wonderful for me. So you might think, well, I know it's knowing that when you die, you go to heaven. And she would say, well, that's wonderful too. But it wasn't the most wonderful for me. So you might say, well, then Miss Saken, Charlotte, what was the most wonderful thing about getting saved? And she would tell you with a big old smile on her face. When I got saved, I got a new daddy. And my new daddy loves me. And my new daddy made a promise to me that he has kept all of my life. And for a little orphan girl, this promise means the world. And J.D. read it to us from God's Word a moment ago. That promise is this, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And the good news of the gospel is what he did for my wife as a little girl, he'll do for any one of us in this room tonight if we will just ask him. So what's the key to knowing God is your perfect heavenly Father? Well, it's knowing Jesus and knowing the Jesus that you find revealed in the Bible. I've been teaching theology now for almost, goodness, 30 years. And I often say when I teach theology, I don't care who you are, and this includes you right now, I don't care who you are. Give me about 15 or 20 minutes with you. Let me just ask you some basic questions about what you believe about Jesus. I guarantee you I can point to and identify about 95% of how you think about everything else. I'll guarantee it. Because what you think about Jesus will determine what you think about the Bible, what you think about salvation, what you think about people, what you think about who you are, why you're here, where you're going, what's it all about. All of it revolves around Jesus. So nothing is more important, I believe, than that you understand rightly who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So when I teach the doctrine of Christology, 
I always begin the same way by encouraging my students to learn and to embrace and to make as their own four important passages in the Bible. If you're a note taker, you ought to just jot these down somewhere, but four, what I call the four Christological pillars in the New Testament. The first one is John 1, 1 through 18. You'll know it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that tells us that God indeed is the God of Revelation. He has revealed Himself perfectly in the Word. A second passage is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Again, many of you will know verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and came in the likeness of a man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he is the God of humiliation, the God who humbled himself. A third passage is found in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. There the Bible says, God in the past spoke at many times in many ways through the prophets of old, but in this last day he has spoken to us by his Son. And again, the emphasis falls upon God and his revelation. But there's a fourth passage. And it is the one we're going to walk through very quickly tonight. It is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 23. And so, again, ever how you have God's Word, I want you to join me there in the book of Colossians chapter 1. We're going to give our attention to verses 13 through 23. And if the uh, Gospel of John emphasizes the God of the incarnation, and if Philippians emphasizes the God of humiliation, and Hebrews emphasizes the God of revelation. Colossians emphasizes the God of creation. And Colossians tells us that ultimately the God of creation is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There are few passages in the Bible, I believe, more important and more significant in helping us rightly understand who God is, and in particular, who God the Son is, and in particular, who we become in Him. So our identity in Christ is only rightly understood when we know who He is. So look at what the Bible says. I'm going to read the passage. A, a friend of mine several years ago said, you're what I would call a Bible walker. And by that he meant you just have this practice of just walking through the Bible. And so that's exactly what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to walk you through it verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word, and just try to help us understand how Paul revealed Christ to the church at Colossae that was in a confused state, just kind of very much like today, that mysticism, spiritism, legalism, all sorts of philosophies were going about, and people were just all over the place when it comes to what they thought both about God, what they thought about creation, and what they thought about Jesus. And so Paul wants to clear that up. He wants to clear it up for the Colossians 
But I also believe by God's divine spirit, he wants to clear it up for us as well. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He, that is God the Father, going back from verse 12, he has, number one, delivered us from the domain of darkness. Secondly, he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Three, we have in him redemption. Fourthly, even the forgiveness of sins. He, that is the son of verse 13, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. You ought to mark that word all. It will occur no less than eight times in verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created. Where, Paul, I'm glad you asked, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether they are thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And, verse 17, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things or everything, he might be preeminent, that he might have first place. Why does he deserve first place? I'm glad you asked. Verse 19, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, here's your past. You were once alienated, hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds. But now, here's your present. He has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death, and here's your future, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed, here's your responsibility, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to all creation under heaven, and in which I, Paul, became a minister." Now, what I want to do tonight is share very quickly from this passage five observations about who Jesus Christ as the Lord of all creation is. And bottom line, here's what Paul is going to argue. First of all, he created you. Secondly, he saved you. And therefore, he has the right to be Lord over you. That's his argument, boiled down in a nutshell. He created you. He saved you. And therefore, he has the right to be the Lord over you. So you see, I'm going to tie together what J.D. talked about in terms of the Trinity and in particular the Father. I'm going to wrap it up in the category of creation. Then tomorrow, Savior and Lord. So why is it that we would say Jesus Christ is the Lord over all things? Well, number one, because Jesus is the Savior. Verse 13 and verse 14. Now, just in that very simple proposition, there are several things that this verse puts to rest or puts away. First of all, it denies the false teaching of universalism, which says eventually everyone will be saved. 
Secondly, it denies the false teaching of deism. That's a philosophy of, or a theology of God which says God is up there and out there, but he does not care about you and me down here. Thirdly, it denies the false philosophy of fatalism, which says all things are predetermined and inevitable. There is no God up there and out there who has stepped down and intervened into our world and into our life. Now, what Paul does in these first two verses is he emphasizes four marvelous aspects of the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, first of all, through Christ, God delivers us from the power of evil. Look at the first phrase of verse 13. He, and he is again a reference to the Father of verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, who's made you fit to share in the inheritance of the saints who now live in the realm of life. He, that is the Father, first of all, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. The idea is God the Father has rescued us. Uh, he has liberated us. He has released us from the captivity of what he calls the power or the domain of darkness. And by that, he simply means the realm of Satan, the realm of evil, the realm of moral and ethical and theological wickedness and futility that stands in opposition to God. It's really the language of warfare. God, through his Son, has invaded enemy territory. And coming into this enemy territory, he has rescued us, he has set us free, he has delivered us from the domain or the realm of darkness. Secondly, through Christ, God gives us a new spiritual address. He says also in verse 13, yes, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. And secondly, he transferred us, he moved us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, in saving us, he has moved us from one location, spiritually speaking, to another location. Once we were in darkness, now we're in light. Once we belonged to Satan, now we belong to the Son. Once our address was hell, now our address is heaven. I have a new spiritual address because I have been delivered by God from the domain or the power of darkness. So, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. He transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, the Son that he loves. Thirdly, in Christ, we have been redeemed, in whom we have redemption. The idea is God paid a price to deliver us from the realm of darkness. He paid a price to deliver us into his kingdom. So we're delivered from the domain of darkness. We're transferred into a new address, the kingdom of the beloved son. Thirdly, we have been paid for, bought through redemption. And fourthly, we indeed experience the full and the complete and the total forgiveness of our sins. In other words, let me summarize it this way. In Christ, number one, I'm rescued from darkness. Number two, I'm given a home in the kingdom of the Son of God that God the Father dearly loves. Thirdly, I've been set free from the slavery of sin. And number four, I have been forgiven of every single sin I have committed in the past 
and every single sin I will ever commit in my life, all of them, past, present, future, have been covered, as he will say in verse 20, by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. Secondly, Jesus is the revealer. Verse 15, this denies the false teaching of mysticism, the belief that direct knowledge and contact with God or whatever ultimate reality is can only be attained through what we would call a subjective, mystical, spiritual experience. Secondly, it denies cultism, of which there are several thousand in America today. You say, what is a cult? Well, here's a very simple definition, though we could expand it. It's a religious movement uh, that claims some relationship to Christianity, but it denies, first of all, the eternal deity of the Son of God. Secondly, it denies the full sufficiency of what he did on the cross as our atonement. And thirdly, every cult without exception denies the Bible alone as our authority. So it does away with mysticism, it does away with cultism, it does away with atheism. The worldview that says there is no God or that there are no gods at all. And it also does away with the false teaching of agnosticism, which is kind of a more tamed version of atheism. You see, atheism is very dogmatic. There is no God. Agnosticism is a little more humble. Uh, well, if there is a God, I've never met him or her or them or it. So I'm going to live my life just like an atheist lives his life as if there is no God. Well, verse 15 puts to rest and puts away all of these false ways of thinking about life. Now, I do agree with some Bible teachers, many Bible teachers, as a matter of fact, that think Colossians 1, 15 through 20 was an early Christian hymn. In other words, they would sing this to Jesus as to God. Already uh, in the 60s, they are worshiping Jesus and making up songs to Jesus as a God, all right? Furthermore, there are two twin towers that are clearly joined together in verses 15 through 20 in Colossians chapter 1. One is, he is the Lord over the material creation, that's verses 15 through 17. Then secondly, he is the Lord over the spiritual creation, the church, which is verses 18 through 20. So in terms of creation, Jesus is Lord over the material creation, and he is also Lord over the spiritual creation as well. And again, as I mentioned a moment ago, what we're about to read is all the more amazing when you consider how few years have transpired since Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead, and now Paul is already writing letters and drawing from traditions that are already in place in the 50s and the 40s. In other words, I think you can make a really good argument that they were already singing songs to Jesus as to God by the late 30s and the early 40s. In other words, one of the arguments of liberalism is, well, they developed these mythical, uh, outlandish views of Jesus over many, many, many years of separation from his actual life to the actual writings of these books. That's simply not true. Paul's writing Colossians in the early 60s. 
Paul's writing and drawing from material that's already out there. He, he's drawing from a song that they're already singing. Well, how long have they been singing? Well, they at least are singing it in the 50s, maybe even already into the 40s, possibly even in the late 30s. In other words, it did not take long at all for the early church to point to Jesus and say, he is God in the flesh. Now, they may be wrong. I don't think so. But don't tell me they did not already believe very, very, very early that Jesus of Nazareth was God. And then that raises a huge question. What in the world would lead a bunch of first century Jews to claim that this man is God? And I've got a really good answer. It's called the empty tomb and the resurrection. That would have done it, and I think that's exactly what took place. Now, what I want you to see then is what Curtis Vaughn notes very wisely, this wonderful New Testament scholar who was at Southwestern Seminary for many years. He says, and I quote, the affirmations of this passage are all the more remarkable when we remember that they were written of one who only 30 years earlier had died on a Roman cross. So what does he say about him in verse 15? He says this, he that is the son of verse 13 is the image of the invisible God. That word image is the word icon. What it means is Jesus Christ makes visible the God who is invisible. We know that the Bible teaches God is spirit. We cannot see God in terms of his essence. And so Jesus Christ, by means of the incarnation, makes visible for us the God who is invisible. In other words, he clears up any confusion. Uh, he clears up any misguided ideas about who God is and what God is like. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. You want to know what God thinks? Just listen to Jesus, because he is the one who makes visible the invisible God. I love the way that John Calvin said it, and I quote, Christ is the image of God because he makes God visible to us. And because of this, we must be careful not to seek God elsewhere. Why? For outside of Christ... All that claims to represent God will turn out to be nothing less than an idol. I love the way that one man put it. If God became a man, we would expect him to, be, to come miraculously. Jesus did. If God became a man, we would expect him to be sinless. Jesus is. If God became a man, we would expect him to perform miracles with ease. Jesus did. If God became a man, we would expect him to speak the greatest words ever spoken. Jesus did. If God became a man, we would expect him to love us perfectly. Jesus does. If God became a man, we would expect him to exert the most powerful influence of any person who ever lived. Jesus did. Bottom line, if you truly want to know what God is like, then all you have to do is look to Jesus. He makes visible for all of us to see the invisible God. So he is the Savior. He is the revealer. Number three, he is also the creator. Again, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, this denies evolution. 
The scientific theory that says all the various kinds of living organisms developed and diversified through time, plus chance, plus natural selection, and plus survival of the fittest. And all this happened without any divine aid or any divine intervention. Furthermore, it denies the false philosophy of naturalism, which says that the natural, uh, the material world is all that exists. There is no spiritual reality. There's nothing external that exists other than this material, natural world that we can touch, uh, that we can see, that we can smell and taste and hear. Whatever your senses can get in contact with, that is all that exists. And this passage says that is absolutely not true. Now, there are two key words that unlock the remainder of verses 15 through 20. One is the word all that I mentioned earlier occurs eight times. The other is the very interesting word firstborn. Firstborn, and I'm gonna to try to unwrap that for you in light of what the Bible clearly teaches about this particular phrase. So there are two things I wanna say under the idea of Jesus as the creator. Number one, the text teaches us he made everything. He made everything. He is the image of the invisible God, verse 15. He is the prototokos, the firstborn over all creation. Now, when we hear that word firstborn, if we're not careful, we'll misunderstand what the word means because in our mind, we hear the word firstborn and we think, okay, that means he was the first one born, which then means, of course, there was a time when he did not exist. That is not what the word means. That is not what the word means. You say, can you prove that? Oh, I can prove it multiple ways, but I'll just do a couple. First of all, it is true that sometimes the word carries the idea of chronology and priority. So, for example, in Luke chapter 2, in verse 7, it says that Jesus was the firstborn son of Mary. It's the same word, prototokos, firstborn. So he was the first in terms of chronology, and he was the first in terms of priority as well, all right? But the word firstborn also occurs in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the word firstborn almost always carries the idea of position, status. It's a title of, of first place and supremacy. In fact, you ought to just jot this down and look at it later. Psalm 89, verses 27 through 29. Psalm 89 verses 27 through 29. There, the psalmist is making the argument that David, King David, is going to have a son who will be the Messiah, okay? Now, we know that the Messiah was not his immediate son. In fact, we also know that the Messiah was not his grandson or his great-grandson, but actually the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, was a great, 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 great grandson of David. Well, what does Psalm 89 verse 27 say? Listen to what the Bible says. I will make him, that is the Messiah, my firstborn. He will be what? The highest of all the kings of the earth. His seed also I will make endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. 
Now, that is exactly the meaning that the Apostle Paul has when he writes Colossians 1, verses 15 and following. He has the idea of Jesus as the firstborn in terms of his sovereignty. He has in mind the idea of Jesus in terms of his supremacy over all of creation. As one man said, yes, he is before creation, but he is also above creation as the creator. And in case you just think, well, I don't really buy that argument. Let's just keep reading. Look at what verse 16 says. For by him, all things were created. Now, just in case you're like me and you're a little slow, and you don't know what he means by all things. It's like he says, I'll help you out. Number one, in heaven and on earth. So up there, down here, he made it all. Visible and invisible. What you see, he made. What you don't see, he made. Thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, which was a first century way of talking about heavenly beings. So Jesus made the good angels. And he made what are the bad angels, which we know as demons. In fact, by him and through him and for him, he created everything that has ever been created. That's why Warren Wiersbe, the wonderful Bible teacher, said it this way. When it comes to creation, Jesus Christ is the primary cause. He planned it. He is the instrumental cause. He produced it. And he is the final cause. He did it for his own pleasure. So he made everything, but then secondly, he sustains everything. Look at what it says there in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. As I was taught as a little boy in a church growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, he's got the what? the whole world in his hands. He made it, he sustains it. In fact, the wonderful New Testament scholar H.C.G. Mool said it this way, Jesus keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. Now, these verses have massive, massive, staggering ramifications of which I'm going to just highlight for you very quickly five of them later this whole PowerPoint thing will be at my website so you can look it up there but just let me walk you through these very quickly because I think we can draw these conclusions from what I just read number one if Jesus made everything then he himself cannot be a creature secondly Paul a first century Jew would only know the God of Genesis 1-1 as the creator. So when he says that Jesus made everything, he's saying Jesus, the Son, is the God of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now, this is important. Number three, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Watchtower's Bible, which is called the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, See the problem with these verses. Remember now, they don't believe that Jesus is the eternal son. The watchtower believes that God made Jesus, or no, no, God made the son, and then through the son, he made everything else. So in their thinking, in their theology, God the son is God with a little g. There's God the father with a big g. There's God the son with a little g. And so God the father made God the Son, and then through the Son, 
He made everything else, all right? That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. It's really what the Mormons teach. It's what all the cults teach. So the New World Translation sees the problem. So they changed, now listen to me, they changed the Bible to fit their heretical theology. And you know what they do? They add a word to the Bible. It's not in the Greek text. They add the word other. And the word other, in the, now let me say it this way, in the old version of the New World Translation appears no less than five times in verses 16 through 20. Now, just to be accurate, I went online today and checked out the current version of the New World Translation, and the word other is still there five times, but guess what they've done? They've removed the brackets. In other words, they were more honest 20 years ago than they are today. At least back then, they put it in brackets, which was their way of saying, well, this word is not a part of the original text, but we're adding it because we think it clarifies the theology that Paul's trying to teach. Well, no, it doesn't. It actually perverts the theology that Paul was trying to teach because Paul was trying to help us understand everything that has ever been made was made by the Son. You don't need to use the word other. The word other distorts what the Bible is actually saying. Number four, the spiritual world and the material world. He made it. Everything that exists, exists for Jesus. And so if you're trying to put it together in a Trinitarian kind of a way, I like to say it this way. The Father is the author of creation. The Son is the architect of creation. And the Spirit is the agent of creation. Therefore, creation is Trinitarian through and through, but it finds its meaning and fulfillment ultimately in Jesus. Number four, he's the Savior, he's the Revealer, he's the Creator, but now he is also the leader. And this denies what I call radical individualism, the idea that life is all about me, that I am the captain of my own ship and the Lord of my own destiny. Paul now shifts from the material creation to the spiritual creation, and he says in verses 18 through 20, look at what it says. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And here's probably one of the most important phrases in all of the Bible, that in everything he might be preeminent. What Paul is arguing is simply this. Jesus Christ is first over creation, because he made it. Secondly, Jesus Christ is first over the church because he saved it. He is the firstborn from the dead, the first of a new order of what we call resurrection beings, and this is the case, and this is the reason why in everything he may be preeminent. In everything he may have first place. Now, again, I have so much I could say here, but to honor our time, if he has first place in everything, that means he should have first place in your life. If he is to have first place in everything, he is to have first place in your life. As one of my friends says, Jesus Christ is not interested in being the co-pilot of your life, the runner-up of your beauty contest, or the vice president in your corporation. He is not interested in any of those things. He simply wants to be preeminent. He wants to have first place. But again, Warren Wiersbe, the wonderful Bible teacher, puts it really well when he says, and I quote, 
Few would deny the importance of Jesus Christ. They would simply dethrone him. They would give him prominence in their life, but they would not give him preeminence. No, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Why does he deserve to be preeminent? Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Whatever it is that makes God, God, God the Son is all of that in its absolute fullness. Again, listen to the great scholar B.B. Warfield of Princeton Theological Seminary when he said, and I quote, the very deity of God, that which makes God God in all its completeness, has its permanent home in our Lord, and that in a bodily fashion. That is, it is in him clothed with a body. He who looks upon Jesus Christ sees no doubt a body and a man. But as he sees the man clothed with the body, so he sees God himself in all the fullness of his deity clothed with humanity. Only Jesus has the fullness of deity. And then he says, verse 20, only Jesus is qualified to make reconciliation. And through him, he reconciled to himself all things, whether they're on earth or in heaven. And here's the phrase I want to focus on, making peace by the blood of his cross. I grew up singing songs like probably most of you about the blood of Christ and about the, the beauty of his atoning sacrifice by means of his blood. And then I went to seminary and I discovered that uh, there are a lot of folks out there that don't think very highly of the blood of Christ. And in fact, there's some that are rather embarrassed by the blood of Christ. In fact, there was a seminary years ago that was part of the Southern Baptist Convention. My friend Al Moeller, in the very first class he took there on the Gospel of Matthew, the professor stood up on the very first day of class and said, we will not have any talk in this class of a bloody atonement. We don't believe in slaughterhouse religion around here. That was at a Baptist school. But there are schools not very far from here right now that are embarrassed to talk in terms of a blood atonement. In fact, there's a feminist theologian by the name of Dolores Williams, who several years ago at a Bible conference said, and I quote, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses, blood dripping and weird stuff. She was joined by a self-professed lesbian feminist theologian by the name of Virginia Mollencott, who added, and I quote, I can no longer worship in a theological context that depicts God as an abusive parent and Jesus as the obedient, trusting child. And in her book, Sisters in the Wilderness, Dolores Williams said, and I quote, there is nothing divine in the blood of the cross. I confess to you all, I like much better the thinking and the words of William Copper who said, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. To the words of the songwriter Lewis Jones, would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in 
the blood. Finally, and quickly, Jesus is the Savior, the Revealer, the Creator, the Leader, and He is the Master. This denies egoism, which is actually an ethical theory that treats an individual person's self-interest as the foundation of morality. Whatever is good for me is right. Welcome to America in the year 2019. He is the Master is laid out beautifully for us in terms of our past, our present, and our future. I'll just note it quickly and we'll close. Look at verse 21. And you, in your past, you were alienated. You were separated from God. You were hostile in your mind. You weren't looking for God. You didn't want God. And because you were hostile in the way you thought, you were hostile in the way you acted, your life was characterized by doing evil deeds. That's your past. That's my past. But now my present. He has reconciled me in his body of flesh by his death. His atoning sacrifice on the cross made it possible for me to be rightly related to God. And look at the future I am now promised. He will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, the gospel, the only gospel which I proclaim to all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You say, what does he mean by that phrase, if you continue in the faith? Well, there was an old North Carolina evangelist named Vance Habner who used to say it this way, faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. You say, would you say that one more time a bit slower? Yes, I will. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Because when you receive the saving faith that God gives you as a gift, it will not fizzle. It will indeed endure to the end. God saves you. God keeps you. God will get you to the finish line. So let me close with this wonderful um, devotional thought that I came across in preparation for my study, simply called the victory of the king. I think it is an appropriate commentary on Colossians 1. It should be up on the screen. The Lord said yes to the death of the cross. Crowded is finished, bowed and died. In the kingdom of darkness, the devil celebrated, we've destroyed the king, they cried. But amidst the celebration, footsteps were heard walking the corridors of hell. Then the shouting stopped when a voice rang out, a voice that rang like a bell. Satan then recognized as he, Satan then trembled as he recognized him who came to deliver his own. Shut and lock the gates, he cried. Don't let him ascend to his throne. So the gates swung shut in the face of the king to prove God's salvation untrue. But he shook hell's gate and cried, lift up your heads. The king is coming through. Then out of the devil's prison house came a procession led by the king. Our Lord came down to save us, they cried. By his blood we have been redeemed. Jesus Christ, Colossians 1 teaches us, is everything. It is my prayer this evening that he will be everything to me 
and that he will also be everything to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again so much for the wonderful word that we heard from J.D. about the fact that as our Trinitarian God, you love us like a father. You are a father to those who receive you through faith by your Son, the Lord Jesus. And I thank you that there's so many wonderful passages in the New Testament that show us the beauty and the glory and the wonder and the greatness of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And I thank you that here in Colossians we see him Uh, put on display in so many beautiful ways as our Savior, as the one who reveals to us perfectly God, as the creator both of this material world but also of your church, as the one who leads and as the one who is the sovereign master, rightly so, over everyone who names him Lord and Savior. And so, Father, he is to be preeminent in everything, Simply stated, he is to have first place in everything. Lord, may he have first place in our lives in how we think, in how we act, in how we live. And yes, Lord, even in how we die, that from beginning to end, we can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live, I get Christ. If I die, I get more of Christ. What a wonderful salvation. You indeed deserve to have first place in my life. May that be true now and forever. We ask and pray this in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.